Bibles now and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The last couple weeks, I haven't been able to get through an entire sermon without running out of time. Today, it is my intention, Lord willing, to finish chapter 1. Yeah, you laugh because you don't think I can do it. And maybe I can't, but by God's grace, we'll see. First Peter, as we have noted from the very beginning, is a letter written with a pastoral heart behind it. It's a letter of pastoral encouragement and instruction to suffering saints, to suffering Christians. It is a letter of godly counsel, a letter of discipleship, if you will, giving God's people hope and encouragement to live steadfast in godly lives, even in this world where they feel less and less at home. Peter says in chapter 5, verse 12, that his purpose for writing this letter is to remind Christians of the grace of God that is at work in their lives and to call God's people to stand fast in that grace. So far, we've looked at the first 13 verses of this book. The entire focus this whole time has been on the certainty and the greatness of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first 12 verses, Peter doesn't give a single command. So much for a book on practical Christian living, right? But that's just it. The doctrinal foundation that Peter is laying here is incredibly practical. And we're going to see that as we go on from here on out. The book of 1 Peter is a book of practical pastoral instruction on how to live with steadfast hope in a world that is not our home. How to remain faithful and godly in a sinful and difficult world. But before Peter gets into any sort of practical instruction, of any sort of commands for the here and now, before Peter gets into what we ought to do, he first reminds us of who God is and what we are in Him. This is the only sure foundation that we have for steadfast hope in this world. Our hope is not found in what we do, it's found in who God is and what we are in Him. And that forms the basis for what we do. And that is the process. That's the order that Peter follows. He talks about how we have been set apart unto God and then teaches us how to live set apart lives here and now. And that's what I want us to notice this morning as we look at this text. Verse 13 of chapter 1 marks a turning point in the book of 1 Peter. We know that from the word therefore. We saw that last week. What Peter is about to say from here on out flows from, it is the natural result of everything that he has said to this point. So here, the emphasis shifts from the certainty and greatness of our salvation to the implications and the responsibilities of it. Because this is who God is and what He has done for us, 
What are we to do now? How do we respond? And the overall command, the basic call that summarizes everything that Peter is about to say, as those who have received mercy by God's grace alone, Peter's command is found in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, so also you also be holy in all your conduct. The essence of what we find here is a call to holiness. And in our text for today, verses 13 through 25, at the end of the chapter, Peter shows us what that looks like. What does holiness look like? Let's look at the text. Please follow along as I read it, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In this text, we find several characteristics of holy people, characteristics that God's people are called to pursue and to imitate in our lives. But before we look at what marks holy people, I want us to do a quick review of what we've covered so far and consider what makes holy people. And I want us to understand where we fit into the story and where holiness truly comes from in a believer's life. I want us to consider, first of all, what makes holy people. This is a bit of a review, looking back over verses 1 through 12, but from another perspective. And I do this because we need to understand what holiness is does not look like. We need to have the true source of holiness in our minds so that we don't set our minds on the wrong source of holiness. The word holiness is not a very popular word today, is it? Even among Christians, for some, 
there seems to be a sort of gag reflex when we hear this word, holiness. For many, this word seems to be a negative word, a frightening word, or even a dangerous word. For some, the word brings to mind thoughts of monks hidden away in monasteries and starving themselves in an effort to win God's approval. For others, holiness brings to mind images of sullen, harsh Puritans whose greatest fear is that someone somewhere is having fun. That's a stereotype, by the way, that is entirely false about the Puritans. For some, the idea of holiness suggests squeaky clean religious people who have it all together and have all the answers. Still, for some, holiness means legalism or works salvation, the total opposite of grace. Even in the church today, there are many Christians, some who are even pastors, who denounce any emphasis on holiness as a denial of God's grace and a denial of salvation by faith alone apart from works, as if holiness and grace are mutually exclusive. But is that really what holiness is? What's the answer? No. And the answer to that is not just no, it's for heaven's sake, no. <laughs> right? That's not what it is. Not according to the Bible. So when Peter calls believers to holiness here, what is he talking about? Well, he's laid the foundation. He has given us the basis for holiness already. And simply put, holiness, what is it? Holiness, as it is used and as it is described in Scripture, has the idea of being set apart, of being consecrated or dedicated to something or someone in particular. And it also has the idea of sanctification or purification as it is being set apart for a particular purpose. For instance, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and then called him to sojourn in the promised land, God was essentially sanctifying him, making him holy, setting him apart from the old way of life, from the idolatrous way of life, and dedicating him to himself, taking Abraham as his own possession and setting him apart for his own divine plan. Likewise, centuries later, when God called Israel out of Egypt and rescued them from slavery, God made clear to them that he had taken them for his own possession, that he had set them apart unto himself for his divine purposes. We get a vivid description of that. We get a vivid illustration of that in the setting up of the tabernacle, right? And the dedication of all the utensils to the worship of Jehovah in the tabernacle. And on a much bigger scale, we get a, a picture of it when Solomon, centuries later, completed the construction of this magnificent temple. And then he led a significant dedication ceremony which set the temple apart from everything else in Israel, which dedicated it to a particular use and purpose. 
the worship of God, and it was to be used only for that purpose and only according to the, the instructions that God himself had given. Well, in the same pattern as we come into the New Testament, we find that the church made up of all who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, that we have been set apart from the world unto God we have been purified from our sin and we have been called, we've been made righteous before God and called according to his sovereign purpose. That is what Peter has in mind as he calls God's people to holiness. This is what he has been describing. All Christians have been called by God the Father, have been purified by God the Son, have been sanctified by God the Holy Spirit, and are held fast by His grace and peace. That's what we saw in verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, all Christians have been born again to a living hope through Christ, unto an indestructible inheritance. And in this life, we are being purified and strengthened in our faith by the trials that we face. That is ongoing sanctification. And that's what we saw in verses 3 through 9. This is what it means to be holy. It means to be rescued from sin, to be set apart from the world and its sinful way of life, to be consecrated to God as his own special people, to be dedicated to a new and godly way of life according to the good design of a sovereign God. So what Peter is describing in verses 1 through 12 is not only the basis for holiness, it is holiness. It is the position of holiness, the settled reality that in Christ we have been made holy. That is why in Scripture you are called saints. You know what the word saint means? Holy one. If we are in Christ, we have been set apart. We all have been set apart from sin unto God. It means we belong to Him. And though we've already studied these verses before, I mention all of that again here because we need to understand that holiness, first and foremost, is a position that belongs to all Christians by the gift of God's grace alone in Christ alone. It is a reality. It is the new reality for those who believe in Jesus Christ, that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Now, that doesn't mean that we have it all together. That doesn't mean that we have the answers to all of life's questions. It doesn't mean that we are perfect at this point, because it is still a process. And it certainly does not mean that we have, by our own efforts, achieved God's favor. And contrary to the stereotypes, it does not mean that we are sullen, burdensome, self-abusive people. No, not at all. It means that we have been saved by God's grace, that we have been adopted into God's family, and we have been given an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us. And it means that we have been reconciled to God and are being purified in our character. It means that we have eternal life, that we have peace with God, 
that we are that, that, that he is fulfilling his purpose in our lives and we have received indescribable joy in him. All of that describes what makes holy people. Who we are in Christ, every one of us. And now that sets us up to consider next what marks holy people. Peter goes on in the rest of this chapter to teach us that this position of holiness has implications for our lives. And this is where, if we're not prone to legalism, if we're prone to the opposite, to, to lawlessness, this is where we may get off track. Right? Holiness is a position. It's a settled position before Christ, but it has ongoing implications for how we live. So contrary to what many might teach today, our salvation is not all about just getting out of hell. And that's the end of the story. That's not the purpose of salvation. Nor is the fact that we are saved and sanctified by God's grace a license for us to live however we want and according to our own selfish ambitions. Scripture is very clear on this. Over and over and over again, salvation is a transforming salvation. Sanctification is a transforming sanctification. Holiness is a transforming holiness. Those who truly know the reality of being set apart from sin and unto God know the reality of a new life of a new lifestyle, of a way of life that is set apart from sin and consecrated to God. But again, there are so many common misconceptions about what that looks like and what that means in everyday life. So, after showing us in verses 1-12 through 12 what makes holy people, Peter goes on now in verses 13-25 through 25 to describe what marks holy people. That is, what are the characteristics that distinguish God's people from everyone else? What are the characteristics that mark out true Christians from the world? What characterizes the worldview, the thinking, the way of life for those who are set apart unto God? What should be the identifying characteristics of each one of us today? who claim the name of Christ. In these verses, you ready for this? There are eight marks. Yes, I'm going to give you eight points. Eight marks of people that, 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 that set us apart as strangers in a foreign land. Eight distinguishing features of God's people over against the world. Eight characteristics that, ought, that we ought to pursue in our lives, even though the, the, the pressure of the world might be pushing us in a different way. Let's consider these eight marks together, and I, I urge you to consider them prayerfully and with humility, so that we might continue to grow by God's grace in true holiness and godly character. What are these eight marks? Well, first of all, we learn that holy people have a heavenly hope. 
Holy people have a heavenly hope. We see this in verse 13. Again, this is a review of what we covered last week, but Peter says here, Therefore, that is on the basis of your holy position in Christ, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, just ask anyone in this world what they think happens after they die or after this world ends, and many will not have any sort of an answer. Some will even change the subject. And even among those who do have some sort of an answer, it'll often be overshadowed by what sounds like wishful thinking or an uncomfortable uncertainty. There isn't much eternal hope in the world today. You can see it in people's eyes, can't you? You can hear it in their voices. For most, any thought of what is beyond the here and now is simply unbearable. If I had to pick a word that describes what has replaced the idea of hope in the world today, I think the word I'd pick is desperation. Desperation. People know things aren't right, and they are desperately trying to fix them, but they can't seem to figure it out. That's the mark of people who have no hope. Of a world that is bent on living independently of God and is bearing the consequences. But that is not the mark of God's people, of holy people. We know that this world is not the end of the story. What's more, we know what is at the heart of everything that is wrong with the world. And what's more, we know the solution. And we know what comes next. We know that eternity is coming, that this world is not the end of the story. And yes, we may groan under the weight of sin's influence in this life, but we do not groan as those who are lost and have no hope. We groan as those whose eyes are looking to heaven to our eternal inheritance, and we are longing for our heavenly home. With that hope in mind, yes, we strive to be good pilgrims here, but our longing is for heaven. The thoughts that strengthen us and carry us through the difficulties of this life are the thoughts that remind us that Christ is returning. That eternity awaits. The Apostle Paul encourages us with that very thought in Philippians chapter 3. When he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, Paul says, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That's a heavenly hope. If we have been set apart unto God, and we are no longer servants to this world, 
then this hope of heaven is what fills our minds. And it's what enables us to stand firm and to live faithful and godly lives here and now. It is our spirit-given, eager anticipation of a glorious inheritance in Christ. We're not meant to feel comfortable in this world as it currently is. We are meant to lift our eyes to heaven. Holy people are hope-filled people even as we suffer. We have a heavenly hope. I know we already looked at verse 13 last week, but I mention it here again because it is from this heavenly hope that everything else flows. Our holy behavior, our holy lifestyle comes from this kind of a mentality. And we'll see what that looks like in the rest of the chapter. So now we come to verses 14 through 16, where we see secondly... Not only do holy people have a heavenly hope, but holy people devote themselves to God. Holy people devote themselves to God. I could say it this way. Holy people are holy. But that doesn't necessarily help you out this morning, does it? That can be a little confusing. But look at these verses and we'll see the connection between the reality and the responsibility. We are holy... Therefore, we must be holy. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's who you were. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's a general command. It's an overall description of what our lives are to be like and why. As obedient children, he says, not as children who obey, but as children of obedience. That's the language. As children who are marked by obedience. As God's own family, as children who belong to Him and who are under His authority, He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That is, do not live as children of the world as you used to. Do not order your lives around the values of this world as you used to. Do not give yourselves to the pursuit of the world like you used to. Or its pleasures or its ambitions like you used to. Don't live as if you belong to this world. Don't live as if your hope is here. Rather, as he who called you is holy, that is, as he is set apart from the world, as he is set apart unto God's holy purposes, as he is in heaven, so you also be holy in all your conduct. <laughs> Live according to the values and the purposes and the design and the mission and the commands of the one to whom you belong. And then Peter quotes the Old Testament specifically from Leviticus, when he says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That was a direct command given from God to the people that he had just separated unto himself, the people of Israel. 
And that has been his design from the very beginning, that all who belong to him should live unto him, even in the context of a sinful world. That means we don't see this world the same way everyone else does. That means that we are not attached to this world. That means that we can let it all go for the sake of God and our inheritance in Him. You listen to the news, you think the world is crashing down. Guess what? It is. In a lot of ways, it is. Christian, if your hope is in those things, if your life is shaken by fear because the world is crashing down around you, then your hope is in the wrong place. You're living like the world. God saved you from that. You have eternal hope. He has set you apart unto himself. And though the whole world burn, you have eternal hope. You have eternal joy. Why? Because you're not staying here. You have an eternal inheritance. And so we can let it all go for the sake of God, if that is his will. This means that we don't have the same driving passions and ambitions that this world does. It means that we don't have the same fears, that we don't enjoy the same pleasures in the same way. We don't take our cues from the world. We don't jump just because the world says jump. We don't shiver because the world says shiver. We don't denounce our faith because the world says it's irrelevant. We don't lose our hope because the world is crashing down. We are set apart from this world. We are set apart from this world for a special relationship with God himself and for a new purpose that comes directly from him. We belong to him. Every part of us, not just our future, but today. And so we give ourselves to him. We are devoted to him. That brings us to verse 17, where we see thirdly, holy people live with reverent fear. You say, you just said we're not fearful people. Yeah, not as the world is fearful. Our fear is different. It's a reverent fear. Peter writes in verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and the implication there is yes, you do. If you're a Christian, this is what you do. You call on him as father the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Isn't that amazing? If we're in Christ, the impartial, perfect, never making a misjudgment judge of the universe, we call him Father. Ha, that's amazing. Anyway, on that basis, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. There are two crucial aspects of God's character that he brings out here. Father, and judge. Those who do not know God view a relationship with God as bondage, as oppression. That's why mankind seeks with all his might to throw off the authority of God in every aspect of this world. To those who do not know God, God is to them a supreme judge. And the response of all who fall under his judgment in unbelief will be fear. Heart-stopping terror. But for those who do know God, 
who belong to him as his children, who call him father. He is still the judge, but he is a fatherly judge. Peter says we call on him as father. That speaks of our relationship with him. That speaks of his tender care and concern toward us. Our heavenly father still judges impartially according to one's, to everyone's deeds. But for us, thanks be to God and to Christ our Savior, we will not fall under his judgment, under the eternal, the eternal terrible judgment of God for our sin. But we will still answer to God for how we've lived our lives. That's not a judgment as to whether we will go to heaven or hell. But it is a judgment as to the heavenly rewards that we will that we will receive from him. So, knowing that God still cares about how we live, knowing that we are still under his authority, that we are still under construction by his grace, that we belong to him, that he is our father, those who know God will conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile, that is, throughout their earthly lives. Holy people look to God with fear. But this is not the terror of eternal judgment. This is the reverence and respect of a child toward his father. Did you ever have a moment in your life where your father looked at you and said, I'm disappointed in you? At that moment, did you stop being his child? No, but you felt like you had, didn't you? That's crushing. Why? Because children who love and honor their parents long to please them, long to make them proud. That is the fear that we have toward our Heavenly Father. Our lives as children of God do not need to be driven by the terror that if we mess up, God is going to send a lightning bolt from heaven and wipe us off the face of the earth. We don't need to live that way, but our lives are to be driven by reverence and honor and respect. We ought to live to please Him. We ought to long to honor Him and to receive that greatest of all judgments that we could possibly receive when our Father looks at us and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Can you imagine the joy? It will be to hear those words. Holy people live with reverent fear, longing to please God. And that directs everything that we think, say, and do. Christian, ask yourself, does that really direct everything that you think and say and do? Then in verses 18 and 19, we move on and see, fourthly, holy people belong to God. We've already said this, right? This has already been established. So maybe it's better if we worded this, holy people know and remember that they belong to God. And Peter says this again. He reinforces the point to drive the truth home in our minds and our hearts. We live with reverent fear because we belong to God. Well, what does that mean? How do we belong to God? Peter says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways 
inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The key word there is ransomed. You know what it means? It means redeemed or purchased or bought back. It means once again that we have been drawn out of the futile, empty way of life. And we have been set on heavenly ground with an eternal hope. This means, Christians, that we are not just owned, but twice owned. We are owned by God because He's our Creator. We already belong to Him, right? But now we doubly belong to God because He is our Redeemer. Once we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to the evil one and to our own sinful flesh. We were condemned as rebels against God and without any hope. But now we are children of God. We are, as Scripture says, slaves to righteousness and holiness. We are recipients of divine grace and joy. How did that happen? How is it that rebellious sinners, treasonous sinners against God can be welcomed into His family. Well, the price of our sin had to be paid. That price could not be paid with perishable things such as silver or gold. There is no amount of money you can throw at God to make yourself holy. Nor could it be paid by any mere human being. There is no action, no accomplishment, no achievement that you can throw at God to make yourself holy. You can't even lay down your own life to make yourself holy. But God, who is rich in mercy, we read in Ephesians 2, has made a way of salvation through His Son so that we were ransomed. That's passive. Did you see that? We didn't ransom ourselves. We were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus shed His blood on the cross dying in our place so that the wrath of God for our sin was poured out on Him instead. And it was poured out fully so that Jesus could confidently and truthfully say, it is finished. But Jesus wasn't just a substitute sacrifice. He was a perfect substitute sacrifice one without blemish or spot you see we are redeemed not just because jesus as the son of god laid down his life for us and rose from the grave that's what peter mentions in verse 21 his resurrection we are not just redeemed by the death of Christ. We are redeemed also by His perfect life on our behalf. See, the death of Christ is enough to bring us the forgiveness of God and to set us back to zero in the account, right? But that's not all that He accomplished in His life and death. He lived a perfect life on our behalf, the perfect life that Adam failed to live. 
so that Christ is not is, is able not just to secure forgiveness from God, but then also to cover us and to clothe us with his own righteousness, a righteousness we could never achieve for ourselves. He doesn't just bring our negative account back to zero. That could never do. He credits to us his own righteousness so that we stand before God with confidence because we are clothed not in our own works, but in the righteousness of Christ counted to us at the cross and by his resurrection and his present work of intercession before the Father's throne. In Christ, we are not just given a new start. We'd mess it up all over again. We are given a new nature. We are given a new life. We are given a new righteousness. We are declared righteous and holy because we are in Christ. He achieved that for us. That is what it means to belong to God through the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the most precious thing to those who have experienced it. If you do not get moved by the truth that Peter has been teaching us here, then you may not truly know God. Because this is who we are. This is what he has done for us. We are set apart to God by his grace alone, through Christ alone. And that brings us to verses 20 and 21, where we see, fifthly, holy people believe in God. And you say, you're being redundant here. You're, you're, you're repeating yourself and you're saying the most obvious things. Holy people believe in God. This is our response to the magnificent truth that we just saw. Peter goes on. He, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The last times, that's now, right? The, the time in which we live. Verse 21. You who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the basis of our hope. It is the source of our standing before God. It is the motivation for holy living in this world. It is the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who gave himself as a ransom for our souls, so that whosoever believes in him, whoever comes to him in repentance and faith, should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know the truth. question is, do you believe in God? Do you believe the truth? Have you received this truth? And next, we start getting a little more practical, more directly practical. And Peter starts dealing more directly with our behavior as a response to all of this. All of this knowledge, all of this heart response. And so as we come to point number six, mark number six, we see that holy people obey God. You say, well, preacher, before you were repeating yourself and now you're just meddling. Yes, I am. Because what we believe influences every detail of how we live. True faith is an obedient faith. It is an active faith. 
If we truly believe in God, we don't just acknowledge truths about Him, but we follow Him. We follow Christ. We obey His commands. We see this at the beginning of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And you say, oh, whoa, whoa, hang on a second here. Are you talking about work salvation? No, that's not what that's getting at. You can't make that from this passage because Peter has gone out of his way all the way up until now to say the opposite. So this does not mean, having purified your souls, does not mean that we are earning salvation by our works. What it means is that we have been purified by the grace of God and the blood of Christ and that those who believe in God and devote ourselves to Him in holiness are pursuing that holy character, are pursuing godliness. This reality plays itself out in a believer's life by obedience to the truth. What does that mean? Obedience to the truth. It's not just any obedience. It's not obedience to what somebody else just happens to tell us. It is obedience to the truth. What does that mean? It means we hear the truth. It means that we hear the revealed word of God and we respond to it. It means believing what God has taught us. It means doing what he has commanded, loving what his word affirms, hating what it denounces, and most of all, adoring the God that it reveals. Holy people, those who truly belong to God, devote themselves to him, they devote themselves to his word, and they devote themselves to obeying what he has said. That means we must hear it. We must believe it. We must do what it commands. We must think what it teaches. We must adore the God that it reveals. Seventh, we see in verses 22 and 23 that holy people love one another. Holy people love one another. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. There it is again. You've been born again through the work of Christ. And because of that, since that is the truth, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23 is the assumption that drives verse 22. It is an indisputable characteristic of those who have been born again that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Don't you think? If you belong to God, if you are truly holy and pursuing holy character, you will love God's people. If you do not love God's people, you clearly do not know God nor do you know true holiness. Is it really that straightforward? Yes, listen to what John says in 1 John 2. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in, dark, in the darkness and walks in the darkness. You say that you're in the light of Christ, and you don't show it by the way you live, by the way you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you clearly are not actually walking in the light. You've deceived yourself. It's that straightforward. 
So, you who say you love God, do you love one another? How do you know? How does it show in your life? I'm not going to answer that question. I want you to think about that. Wrestle with that before the Lord. How do you know? What can you look at in your life that demonstrates you love God's people? I know we're not perfect at this. We make mistakes. We have bad days. We're still sinners. I know that. But are you growing in your love for one another, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Holy people love one another. told Trevor before the service I wasn't going to veer off, but I'm going to veer off for just a moment because I want you to notice something in our culture right now. Christian leaders are going out of their way. They are performing all sorts of mental and spiritual gymnastics to contort themselves to apologize to the world for you. And I'm getting tired of it. Whatever faults we have in the Christian world, we're sinners, just like everybody else, right? And we have issues we have to work through. We have sins that we have to deal with and correct. But I will not throw you under the bus to look good to the world. And you ought never listen to a Christian leader who does. And they're all over the place today. They're prominent. You'd know their names if I said it. All right, I veered off for just a moment. I'm done with that. But holy people love one another. They love God's people. Those are my people. You are my people. And if I have to be thrown into a ditch to fight a spiritual battle, I want you standing next to me. All right, number eight, finally. Holy people trust in the word of the Lord. You say again, you're repeating yourself. No, this, this, there's a new perspective on this here. We read in verses 24 and 25, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's the key right there. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We've already talked about devoting ourselves to the study of God's Word and to obeying God's Word. But here there's a slightly different emphasis. There is a reminder of the brevity of life and of what really matters in this world. Everything in this world is passing away. Nothing lasts. It is all of temporary value. But God and His Word stand forever. Therefore, as one preacher said, the only way to make a true mark in this world is to make a mark for God. That ought to drive the way we live because we are reminded, we trust in the word of the Lord that endures forever. We're not trusting in the temporary accomplishments of this world. The only true hope is heavenly hope. Earthly hope will not deliver. The only true joy is heavenly joy. Earthly joy will not last. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. So are its pleasures. So are its benefits and its gifts. If we have hope in this life only, 
how miserable we are, how hopeless. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But praise God, there is a stronger hope. There is a higher kingdom. There is a greater pursuit. That hope is Christ. That kingdom is heaven. That pursuit is holy living. And when we live for these, we are equipped to live as godly, hopeful, even joyful citizens, though we are temporary citizens of this world. Christians, look back over this list. Look at it prayerfully and examine your hearts. You have been made holy by the precious blood of Christ. You are set apart unto Him. And this is what your life ought to look like as a saint. Does your life reflect that? Can the world tell that you belong to God? Is it clear from your behavior and your conversations and your ambitions that you have a heavenly hope, that you are devoted to God, that you live with reverent fear, that you believe in God and obey Him, that you love your people, that you trust in the eternal living Word of God. Be holy as God is holy. And this is what that looks like. If you're among us today and you're not a Christian, there are a couple questions here for you too. Do you belong to God? Do you believe in God? You may believe that there is a God, but if you've never repented of sin and called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you don't belong to God and you don't truly know Him. You don't believe in Him. These promises of hope and eternal inheritance don't belong to you. But rather, as we saw, God is your judge. And you are headed to an eternity of wrath. But there is a way of escape. And that's what I want you to see if you're not a believer this morning. There is a way to belong to God and to receive this internal inheritance. It is by faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior who died on the cross for you and your sin so that you can be made righteous and holy before God, who is your loving Father. My friend, what is this world offering to you that is of any eternal value? What could possibly compare to eternal salvation in Jesus Christ? And are you really willing to exchange your soul for that? Won't you look to Christ today? Won't you come to Him as your Savior and submit to Him as your Lord and be forgiven of your sin and be given eternal life? Today is the day. Now is the time. Be holy because your Savior is holy. Let's pray.